Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why people who talk more are seen as leaders, why DNA evidence is far from perfect, and an organism that can do things we associate with thinking, even though it doesn't have a brain. Let's satisfy some curiosity. In the musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr advises Alexander Hamilton to talk less, smile more. But a new study from The Leadership Quarterly explains why that's bad advice for power-hungry folks like Hamilton. Because when it comes to leading a group, your best bet might be to talk more. It might seem obvious that you have to talk if you want to be a leader, but starting in the 1950s, some researchers started to wonder, does it matter what a leader actually talks about? And that brings us to the so-called babble hypothesis of leadership. It says no. When it comes to leadership, it's only about the quantity of the words, not the quality. Interesting hypothesis, but even after numerous studies looking into it, researchers didn't have an answer on whether it's true. So researchers from Binghamton University and the University of Oklahoma decided to settle this once and for all. And to do that, they turned to the perfect way to learn about leadership— a group project. Dun, dun, dun. The team assembled 33 groups of college students to work through a computer simulation where they either had to execute a military mission or develop a clean energy startup. Each group had between four and 10 members, and they got 10 minutes to plan how they would tackle the challenge and then 60 minutes to attempt it as a team. One group member was randomly chosen to operate the game's controls during the simulation, but importantly, nobody was assigned to be the group's leader. After the planning phase, and then again after the gameplay, each person was asked to name up to five of their teammates who had emerged as leaders. Now, there are a lot of traits that you might expect to be traits of a true leader. You know, experience, intelligence, extroversion, even proven successes. But these researchers found that not much of that mattered. Who commanded the controls didn't even make much of a difference. The one defining factor was how much time each person spent talking. Those who talked more were more likely to be recognized as leaders. Quantity totally outweighed quality in this scenario. The researchers say it could be that the amount of speaking time matters because it's connected to other important behaviors like portraying confidence. But one thing was clear, and that's that gender was a key factor. Female group members got less speaking time and fewer leadership votes. The analysis found that all male group members got an extra vote just because of their gender, and that effect was magnified for the person who got the most votes. So... Now that you know this, be sure to speak up if you want to step up to a leadership position. And guys, be good teammates by sharing the mic. In any, In any detective, detective show, show, you oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to talk? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Cody. As I was saying, in any detective show. <laughs> sorry, I was just I was just trying to lead being a leader in this. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. You're such a leader. Thanks. In any detective show, you know that when there's DNA on the murder weapon, the cops are certain to find their killer. But in the real world, 
this level of scientific certainty is just as fictional as the show's plot. DNA is hardly the airtight evidence most people think it is. There is, unfortunately, a lot of junk science in the field of forensics. I mean, just look at polygraph tests, for starters. But DNA analysis has always been held up as unassailable. It was conceived in 1984 by British geneticist Alec Jeffries, who stumbled upon it when he was researching genetic sequencing. Soon, he used his technique to help nearby police crack two unsolved murder cases. That made his technique front-page news around the world. It wasn't long before DNA typing was an essential part of the criminal justice system. But at the same time the technique was gaining in popularity, it was losing its precision. Here's why. Alec Jeffries' technique only worked when you compared one large sample of DNA to another large sample of DNA, say, to determine whether a pool of blood found at the crime scene came from a particular suspect. As the science progressed, labs could use smaller samples and mixtures that included DNA from multiple people. And that was handy for law enforcement, but it made the job of scientists a lot tougher. See, humans have 99.9% of their genes in common. So it's that last 0.1% that geneticists look for in DNA analysis. Specifically, there are certain pairs of genes, or alleles, that vary from person to person. And the most accurate way to identify whether DNA came from a certain person is to compare samples at as many locations as possible. But where there are tiny samples, degraded DNA, or mixtures, it's not that simple. You have to decide how many people's DNA are involved, which alleles belong to which person, and whether alleles have disappeared altogether. Suddenly, interpretation comes into play, and that's where things can go very wrong. Like, for one study, 17 lab technicians were asked to reanalyze a DNA sample. Unbeknownst to them, this sample came from a trial where the defendant was found guilty. Only one of the 17 decided that the defendant was guilty. The rest determined that the DNA either didn't belong to the defendant or was inconclusive. This isn't to say that DNA is useless. In trained, competent hands, DNA analysis can be incredibly valuable. But many juries and courtrooms see it as scientific perfection, and it is anything but. Remember this the next time you watch your favorite crime show, because it's a good reminder. Don't believe everything you see on TV. Does thinking really require a brain? What do you think? I know, it seems like a simple question with a simple answer. I mean, of course you need a brain to think, right? And yet... Slime molds might beg to differ. They can navigate mazes without so much as a single neuron. But do they think? So slime molds are amazing creatures, and they're totally alien to us, too. Slime molds come from a different evolutionary branch than plants, animals, and fungi. And from the look of these oozing, pulsing creatures, it's easy to see that. Some slime molds are made up of individual cells that work together, while others are pretty much one giant cell with a ton of nuclei. Some can even grow to be several feet long. Slime molds can be found attached to logs and leaves, like moss and lichen can, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. Unlike moss and lichen, slime molds also crawl. They grow, they explore, and yes, 
they think. At least they do things that seem to require thinking. And scientists aren't totally sure how exactly they do that without, you know, an actual brain. Scientists have placed slime molds in mazes with a food reward at both the entrance and exit. From the entrance, the slime mold can extend a tendril out to explore the maze and eventually connect the entrance with the exit. In a more complex experiment, a researcher arranged little piles of oat flakes around the slime mold as if the slime mold were Tokyo and the piles were the map locations of surrounding towns. The slime mold stretched out its tendrils to those towns in a way that bore an uncanny resemblance to the Tokyo Rail Network. But let me reiterate, the slime mold does all of this without a brain. Scientists still don't know exactly how slime molds make these decisions, but it's clear that they are able to use environmental cues to control their growth patterns, and by extension, their movement. But it's more than a simple stimulus response type of reaction. Recent experiments have shown that slime molds make choices about which direction they should move when they're offered options of differing quality. First, they grow in all directions in an apparent effort to sample the environment, but when they detect something that might be interesting, they begin to move toward it, often ignoring the option that wasn't as good. And I'm going to say for the 80th time, they don't have a brain. <laughs> this is incredibly complex behavior for something that doesn't think at least the way we do. Scientists are actively trying to better understand how slime molds make such complex decisions. So I guess brains? <laughs> Who needs them, right? All right, let's recap what we learned today. Starting with the fact that when it comes to leadership, the quantity of your words matter more than the quality, at least according to a recent study. Another thing that matters? Unfortunately, gender. Women in the study got less speaking time and fewer people calling them leaders than men did. When it comes to who we see as leaders, remember that we've all got biases, and it's a good idea to judge leaders on their skills and experience rather than who they are and how much they talk. We also learned that contrary to popular belief, DNA evidence is far from perfect. It works the best when there's a large sample from one individual, like, say, a pool of blood, but when you start dealing with tiny samples from specks of saliva or fingerprints or samples mixed with DNA from multiple individuals, then interpretation comes into play. And that's when things can go wrong. And this brings to mind a story we talked about, the CSI effect, which is a real thing where people who watch crime shows like CSI on a jury are more likely to believe DNA evidence and other stuff like this. Yeah. And another thing that will happen when you watch a lot of crime shows is mean world syndrome, where you think that everything out there is dangerous and that you need to lock your doors at night and you shouldn't trust anyone. When actually the fact is that the world is getting safer every year. Wow. A lot of weird things happen when you you consume a lot of crime shows. Yeah. So, you know, everything in moderation. And that's why we're only 10 minutes a day. You cannot overdo Curiosity Daily. It's not actually possible. Right. We're just like, we're like those little Costco samples, right? I mean, they won't even let you overdo it. <laughs> you can only take one, maybe two, if you're sneaky. Exactly. That's us. That's <laughs> us. 
And we learned that slime molds are organisms that are unrelated to plants, animals, or fungi, and they do things that resemble thinking, even though they don't have brains. Not only can they navigate a maze, they seem to make actual choices when offered multiple options, and scientists aren't sure how they do it. This is definitely one of those ones that you should look at pictures of, because especially the species that they use the most in these studies is gorgeous. It's like neon yellow. And I mean, it's not what you think of when you imagine a slime mold. I mean, I know I think of something kind of green and mucusy. No, this thing's actually kind of lovely and everyone should check it out. And it does not look like the slime from Dragon Quest, which is all I was picturing the entire time. Or the slime from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Wait, that's not right. Ghostbusters. Slimer. Slimer. But I think there's I think there's slime in Ninja Turtles, too. Well, it's mutagen. It's like radioactive slime. It's mutagen ooze. Oh, it's ooze. Excuse me. Yeah. I got my, my terminology mixed up. Big difference between mutagen ooze and uh, Slimer the ghost. Right. But in general, none of these examples are what slime molds look like. That is our point. In general, in general, nothing we're saying is real. <laughs> Move along. <laughs> nothing to see here. Today's writers were Steffi Drucker and Cameron Duke. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also a writer on today's episode. Our producer and audio editor is Cody Goff. You've got a brain, so you might as well use it. And join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. 